0: of Acts, chapter 15. Our text this morning is the first 21 verses of Acts 15. As we see what has often been called the first General Assembly. But let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. The Word of the Lord is indeed without error. It is infallible. It is sufficient for all our faith and life. And it is authoritative over each and every one of us. Acts, chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old." Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Thus far the reading God's Word. Let's pray that He might add His blessing upon it. Pray with me, please. Dear Lord, we ask this morning that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, illumine Your wondrous Word. That You would remind us of the central importance Your Word has in our lives. That all of our hopes are bound in its promises. That all of our way is bounded by its commands. And we ask, O Lord, that You would teach us, that You would convict us, and that most of all, Lord, that You would change us by Your Word and Spirit. Amen. Have you ever wondered why the church is important? Have you ever thought of why it seems to be so insisted upon by pastor types like me that you need to be a part of a church? That you need to attend a church? Especially this time of year, very often, church attendance spikes. There are many who don't see the importance of the church the rest of the year, but are bound up in it at this time of year. And I think often that is a result of the fact that we don't understand what the church brings to us, how the church relates to the Word of God, how the church helps our souls to be fed, helps us to grow... To the Lord. And to be quite honest, a great deal of this difficulty is caused by the church not doing what God has tasked it to do. Perhaps there's even been a secondary question that has come into your minds. You wonder why is there such a thing as a Presbyterian church? Maybe this question is so burning for you that you have been sitting in on Andrew McCallum's ecclesiology class. You want to know why we bother to have these people called elders and and why we have church courts and, and why does our pastors go off for a week in the middle of the summer to some other city to talk about the things of the church. What does this have to do with my relationship with Jesus? Well, this morning I'm here to tell you that the fundamental thing in your life should be your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second thing this text will tell to us today is that the church is God's appointed means to aid us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look this morning at the church as it gathers in what I've called its first General Assembly, and they're going to be dealing with a very central issue. It is the issue, literally, of life and death eternal. What does it mean to be saved? And so this morning, I would like us to see three things. The first is a problem threatening the church. In this day and in previous days, there are attacks that come upon the church and we're going to see one here this morning. A problem threatening the church. And then we will see the church gather together To provide a community answer. Because that's what the church is. It is the community of believers. It is the body of Christ. And they will gather together to give an answer. But finally, and most importantly, we will see that this all happens so that the Gospel is preserved. So we'll see a problem that threatens the church. The church community come together to provide an answer. And we'll see the Gospel preserved by the Lord through His church. Let's look then, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 15. Just to remind you where we are in our context, you remember chapter 14, Paul finished his first missionary journey. And you remember that that was a successful journey. It was not without hardship. They were driven out of cities. Paul was stoned. But in the main... It was a successful missionary journey. The good part of Central Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, had been reached for the Gospel. Churches had been planted. And so, the missionary journey is ended. And you would think this is a time of unmitigated rejoicing. But Luke begins chapter 15 with a little word that reminds us that there are difficulties ahead. And that word is but. So in the midst of all of the good things that are going on, all of the blessing that is happening, there is a but. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so we find out that some people are actually not happy with what has gone on in the missionary journey. They've come down and they feel that they need to correct Paul and Barnabas. They need to set the record straight. Tell people what to do. And so they come down from Judea to do this. And they do it in an interesting way. Luke says they came down and were teaching this doctrine. They come down and they assume authority in the church. Have you ever had that happen to you? Perhaps it wasn't... In a Bible context, perhaps it was in a context of how you raise your children. And you were having a discussion with one of your children, and someone walks up, perhaps even a stranger in a store, and begins to instruct you on how you are to raise your children. And you think to yourself, who made you the boss of me? Perhaps it's happened at work. Perhaps a colleague who's not in your department or someone who's even under you comes up to you and tells you how you are supposed to do your job. Or perhaps this happens. Perhaps you are working, some of you ladies in the kitchen, trying to get things together for the holidays, and your husband comes in and thinks he's going to tell you how you should prepare the meal. And you think to yourself, I thought I was the one working here. Do you want to help? If not, take your advice into the next room. Right? This is not a pleasant thing. So you can imagine Paul and Barnabas, after just having planted many churches, seen the gospel go forward, everyone is rejoicing, they come back into town, and people are saying, no, no, you really shouldn't listen to this, Paul and Barnabas. Okay, they got some things right, but we'll set you straight. Paul might say to Barnabas, Who are these guys? Did you invite them? No, I didn't invite them. Did you invite them? I don't know. Did Peter send them down? Maybe they have a letter from Peter. Maybe they've got a letter from John saying that they're here to help. Do you you have a letter? No, you don't. why, Why are you here? Oh, you just heard that things weren't going well, and you'd come down and help straighten us out. Thanks for the help. You know, we did just plan about a half dozen churches. We have seen God work in miraculous ways. Why do you think we need your help? Paul and Barnabas might say. Now, you can't really lose this context because this is the theological problem. It is brought about because, quite frankly, some busybodies come down and think they know better than the authoritative leaders of this church. Remember, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned as missionaries. Remember, in Antioch, they have their own elders. They know what they're doing. And these self-appointed leaders come in and begin to teach differently than Paul and Barnabas teach. And the word here for teaching implies that they're doing it over and over again over a long period of time. It's not a one-off thing. You can imagine Paul and Barnabas saying, "Well, you know, we'll, we'll straighten this out later. At least we got through today." And they wake up the next day and they're teaching again, and maybe they try and give them a hint to hit the road. And they're like guests that won't leave around the holidays. And the next day, they're teaching again. And you can almost imagine that Paul and Barnabas are getting very angry. Not just because their authority is being questioned, but because the gospel is being questioned. These people are coming in and saying, what you must do to be saved. And you see, that's why this text appears here in the very center of the book of Acts. It is the crucial issue of not only the book of Acts, but of all of the New Testament. What do I need to do to be saved? How can I be right with God? how do I know Jesus Christ? And Paul and Barnabas know that this is a crucial issue because they not only hint, they not only nudge, they begin to have, I love the way Luke puts this, no small discussion, no small dissension and debate. Now, the word here for dissension is actually not really a very polite word. Almost every place else it's used in the Bible, it's used to describe a riot or violence. So, this is not... Don't picture something that you might see on a BBC program with two gentlemen sitting, sipping tea. and Quiet, you you have a point there. But have you considered this? No. This is... If I can imagine in my sanctified imagination, Paul, who has fought for the gospel, been stoned for the gospel, brought the gospel. If you can imagine him seeing someone tell him that the gospel that he preaches is no gospel at all, you can imagine Galatians Paul comes out. Who do you think you are? Did you see the risen Christ? Do you know salvation by grace? Were you stoned? Do you think I don't know anything? You can imagine that. And we can almost imagine Barnabas. Maybe at the beginning he's the good cop to the bad cop. I kind of imagine Barnabas trying to be the peacemaker. You know, he's the son of encouragement. But after a while, even Barnabas gets heated. Because there's a real theological problem here. The issue is one of salvation. And it is not about whether the Gentiles can be saved. That question is beyond a doubt. But it's even more core than that. It's about what is necessary to be saved. You see, it's almost more insidious than saying these type of people are outside salvation. It's saying all people must be saved by doing, by works, by circumcision, by Jesus plus. Are you African? Well, then Jesus plus is the menu for you. Are you Jewish? Jesus Plus is the menu for you. and well, then you need Jesus Plus to be saved. You see, they're trying to lay down the principle that every person can only be right with God by believing and doing something else. And you can see why Paul would be upset. Now, I want you to know something else here. When we think about those who say, in order to be saved, you must also do the law of Moses, you must also do something, we picture, I think, kind of obnoxious, not very personable, uptight, hypocritical people. Don't we? We paint them in our minds, I think, in the worst possible light. But I don't think that's the case here, and that's what makes this so dangerous. You see, These men from Judea, they were doing what they thought was right. You see, they were trying to keep the principle of covenantal faithfulness alive. They wanted a vibrant church that followed the law of Moses. They wanted a church that was holy. They wanted a church that sought after the Lord. The only problem was they were muddled in their theological thinking. These were folks who wanted to be faithful, but thought that being faithful was required for God to love them. And That's a critical distinction. This is a theological position that every one of you must know, from our grade school children up to our senior citizens. The principle is this, that salvation comes by grace. And only by grace. And we can bring nothing to the table to be saved. Not church attendance. Not church attire. Not wonderful parenting skills. Not an incredible love for our spouse. Not missionary sacrificial zeal. Nothing. But there's a second point you need to hear. And that is that once we are saved, that will produce all of the things that I have mentioned it will produce as evidence of a changed heart, a changed life. You cannot be saved and not care about your spouse and hate your children and not want anything to do with other believers and not read your Bible and not seek to obey the Lord and not seek to pray and not seek to honor the Lord because that proves your heart has not been changed. But you see, the principle is The change comes first. The actions come from a changed heart. And that's what these men were missing. That's what many miss in our day today. This principle in Acts 15 is alive and well in our church. There are ministers in good standing in our denomination who claim you must be covenantally faithful in order to be right with God and praise be to God that our our general assembly not the first but I think the 37th said that's wrong it's only by grace that we're saved this is a massive problem that faces the church theologically but it also leads to a problem of unity you see it is not just theology that is at work here you may say to yourself well I'm no theologian I don't I don't read big books so I keep things simple. This won't affect me. You see, part of the problem is theological, but part of it is unity. You see, these folks from Judea don't like how the church is changing. The church is growing. People who don't speak like them, people who don't look like them, are now thronging into the church. And their church, their beloved church, First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem, is now not as large as the Antioch Presbyterian Church. And they wonder why. And they're not planting churches like Antioch is. And they wonder why the Lord is relegating them to second-class citizen status. And you see, it's a problem of unity. They don't like change. I'm sure there are at least a couple of us that are familiar with that. Not liking change. Not liking change in church. You know the first time we sing a new hymn or change the order of the service a bit or do something different on a Sunday night, it's uncomfortable. We we can learn to live with it, but it causes us to go out of our comfort zone. And that's the other problem that is going on here. There is a unity problem, and you see they have been at this for a while. There is a backstory to Acts 15. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. These men are not coming in a vacuum. We learn in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul has come down to Jerusalem before. And in Galatians chapter 2 he says, After fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. What Paul is describing here is a visit that I believe happens in Acts chapter 11 when Paul and Barnabas come with the aid to the Jerusalem church. And what happens as a result of that is some people in the Jerusalem church hear about what's going on. And you know what they begin doing? They begin following Paul and Barnabas. They go back up to Galatia with Paul and Barnabas. And they do what perhaps you've seen some people do. They follow and they listen to Paul preach in the synagogue and they take notes. Did not mention obedience to Moses. They follow him into homes when there are pastoral questions. Do I need to be circumcised? Did not re- recommend circumcision. Double underline. And they track him and they bring the report. They secretly spy out everywhere that Paul and Barnabas went to undermine Their ministry. And they do it to such an extent that prior to this Acts 15, Peter comes for a visit and Peter is drawn aside into their way of thinking. And Paul, you can almost imagine the tears in his eyes, says, even Barnabas! Even Barnabas was taken away for a time. You see, that's how deceptive a false gospel is. So, how do we deal with this issue? It's a matter of life or death. Does Paul schedule in the city hall of Antioch a smackdown with the Judaizers? Does he write letters to the local newspaper? Letters to the editor? Does he walk outside with a sign in protest? How do we deal with difficulties in the church? We deal with them The way Paul and Barnabas did. The way the church in Jerusalem did. In community. You see, the answer here comes from the community. First, we see the church at Antioch is upset as they are by everything that is going on. The first thing that they do is they seek help. They don't strike out on their own. They don't say, as we might be tempted to... Well, you know, the Antioch church is just much more intelligent than the Jerusalem church. We've just done a better job of studying our Bibles. We're more in tune with the Spirit. Oh, we pray more than they do. They don't try and pit themselves against the church at Jerusalem. What they want to do is gather together and say, We are one church. We've got a problem to solve. Help us. And so what they do is they appoint Paul and Barnabas and some others, and they send a delegation down to Jerusalem to get the matter settled. Now, I want you to understand this. It is not because Paul and Barnabas are weak. It is not because Paul and Barnabas are losing the argument in Antioch. It's because they want the whole church to come together, to be unified, and to be of one mind the reason why when we make decisions here at Christ church we call a congregational meeting of everyone together it's the reason why as the elders lead the church we all come together and discuss and make a decision and go out united together it's because we're more than just a bunch of people believing the same thing the church of jesus christ is a community We are in this together. And so, they gather together. The church at Antioch wants resolution of this issue. So they send this delegation down to the church at Jerusalem. And, praise be to the Lord, the church at Jerusalem is of the same mind. You'll notice what they do. They say, let's all gather together and discuss this. They come together. As this party from Antioch comes down, the apostles and the elders, we see here in verse 6, were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, the word here for consider is actually an idiom that works out very well in English. They actually gathered together to look into it. Literally, to see. To look into it. They want to find out what's going wrong. They want to come to a solution. And we see here also that the church is already governed by elders. It's not just the apostles that are going to make this decision. It's the apostles plus the elders. So they gather together to look into this matter because they are not willing to let the controversy fester. Now, let me stop for just a moment for a point of application. You don't need to be a Presbyterian for this principle to work. You don't even need to be a church. This is a good family principle. You don't let controversy fester in your family. You don't let siblings stay at war with one another. You don't let your marriage stay in a state of violence. You come together and you reason and you think and you pray. And you go forward united, whether you are a family or a church or a company. The biblical principle is we come together because we are a community. And they do it in a very Presbyterian way. It has been said that the proof text, or perhaps the favorite text of Presbyterians, is not, by grace you have been saved, as important as that is. It's let all things be done decently and in order. And we see that happening here. This is a central issue. It is a heated issue. And look how they resolve it. They allow much debate. Not some. Not a little. But much debate. And I want you to see something else here. Who are the leaders of the church Who are they but Peter and Paul and James, the pillars, right? When do they speak? After the much debate. You see, because sometimes it is wise to listen as well as to speak. And this is true also in a church. Your elders should be men of listening ears. Hearing what you have to say. Now, that does not mean doing everything you tell them to do. But it means hearing what you have to say. Parents, you need to hear what your children are saying. That doesn't mean you need to do everything they ask. No, we will not have candy for supper. No, you cannot go out and play Frisbee in the middle of the night. I'm glad you shared that with me. Let me explain to you why that's not appropriate. But you see, listening is one of the things we should do. And that's what they do here at the church. There is much debate because it's important. But notice what they also do. They don't say, well, they've discussed it amongst themselves. They'll figure it out and walk away from the problem. No, the other side of leading... Beyond listening is actually leading. You see, they don't leave men and women to their own devices. They are pillars for a reason. They are leaders for a reason. Called by God, and they lead. And they get up and they speak. They are gracious when they speak, but they get up and speak. Because this is a matter of life and death. And the congregation, the church, must know that it is important to them, and that they have an opinion on it. Woe betide the minister or elder who sits and says, you know, I don't really have an opinion on the Trinity. It's so complex. I'm not sure I've thought through all of the implications of adoption. It's just a tricky situation. No, you are a leader for a reason. And so you lead. And that leads to a wonderful conclusion. The conclusion that we hope and dream for. A conclusion that we need. The Gospel is preserved. Because unless the Gospel is preserved, at this point, you may as well pack up your bags and head for home. Everything is done. The show is over. It may not seem like it. But this is the spot that the church came closest to going out of existence. Not persecution by Nero. Not the dark ages of the middle ages. Here is where the church almost failed. But praise be to God that nothing will stand against the church. That even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And the gospel is preserved. And it's preserved in two ways. God's truth is established and God's people are established. What do we mean by God's truth being established? This is, first and foremost, a theological issue that must be answered. Can you imagine the jailer in Philippi saying to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And him saying, I have to get back to you on that. We haven't come to a firm opinion about that. There are some folks that think you need to do this to be saved, and, and other people think you need to do this. And I'm of an opinion. Could you imagine... What must I do to be saved? The most fundamental question in all of the universe. And here the church takes its stand. Because there's a lot at stake. What's at stake is the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Because if the church agrees with the Judaizers, then everything that Paul and Barnabas have done is worthless. It's actually worse than worthless. Because they've brought a false gospel to Asia. They have planted bad churches with bad doctrine, leading people to hell because they don't know that they need to be circumcised. They don't know they need to do the law of Moses. And all of those people in all of those churches are now going to hell. Lots at stake. The state of the church and its mission... How will the church go forward? What will the second missionary journey look like? What about all of those lost people? People in Italy and in Spain and in Persia. What will we do? What gospel will we bring them? So it's not only all of the past that's at stake, all of the future is at stake. All of it is at stake at this one meeting. Talk about pressure. But the reason why there's pressure is the most important thing at stake is, is faith enough? Is it enough for me to believe on Jesus and be saved? And you know, if you think about it, that's a difficult question. Because in our hearts we want to do more. We want to bring something to the table. We want to show God how much we love Him. We want His response to be for something that we have done. Surely faith can't be enough. Just believing, anyone can do that. Murderers can do that. Like Paul, anyone can do that. There's got to be something else to add. You can also imagine the calls for compromise. Now Paul, do you really need to insist strongly on this faith alone business? Can't we strongly encourage people to keep the law of Moses? Surely we could sit down and knock out some language that will allow us to agree. Right? But you see, compromise can be a good thing in the church. Disharmony is bad in the church. We don't like disharmony. But the church can live with disharmony, can't it? Many of you have lived through that. But the church cannot live without the gospel. So if I have a choice between harmony and the gospel, I pick the gospel. And that's what the church does here. They don't need a last-minute compromise. Can you imagine Paul and Peter and James and the elders treating justification like the tax code? Well, you know, if you add in some provisions for me, I will vote for you for this justification by faith. Let's just not use the word alone. And I want... My widows need some extra cash. So, let's find a compromise here. This is how politics works, right? And too often, this is how church politics works. But the gospel is at stake here. And so, the church stands... There's much debate and then Peter stands up in his last moment in Acts and what is probably his greatest moment in all of the Bible. This beats walking on water. This beats Pentecost, in my opinion. Because Peter stands up and he has every human right to stand up and stick it to Paul. Paul had called him out on the carpet in public. Had embarrassed him had tried to supersede him. Maybe even make it seem like he was more important than Peter. And Peter could have easily have gotten up and pulled a Mark Anthony. You know, Paul, he's such a wonderful guy. Always insisting that he's right. That Paul, he's such a wonderful guy. Always got to be his way. You know, Paul the theologian, what a wonderful guy. And about the third or fourth time you hear that, you realize Paul's not such a wonderful guy. But Peter doesn't do that. He stands up and he reminds the church that he was the one that had gone to the Gentiles, that he was the one that had preached grace. He was the one that had preached justification by faith. He was the one that had seen God vindicate this. What better vindication of a theological position than God sending the Holy Spirit? You don't get that very often. Never happens in our General Assembly. But you see, that's what, Paul, that's what Peter does. He says, salvation is by grace. And he says it in such a wonderful way. I want you to notice this. He says in verse 11, But we believed that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Who's the standard of comparison there? It's the Gentiles. Peter should have, perhaps, according to some, said, but we believe that they will be saved just as we are. No. Peter says, we're just like them. They're the gold standard. They're the model. Think about the grace in Peter's voice there. Because, you see, the temptation is for us to always want to make people like us in order for the gospel to go forward. Do you want to be a Christian? Let me explain to you what it's like to be an American. Do you want to be a Christian? Let me explain to you what it's like to be Reformed. Do you want to be a Christian? Let me explain to you what it's like to have a real heart for missions. You see, we don't need people to be like us. We need people to be like Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying. And So Peter stands up and he gives this speech. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they offer something interesting. No arguments at all. All they do is stand up and tell what glorious things God has done. And then you can almost imagine the tension in the room. Luke sets it for us. He says, everyone fell silent. Which way is this going to go? You can imagine the Judaizers thought when Peter stood up that they were, we're going to win now, and then they're deflated. And then Paul stands up and they wonder, well, James hasn't spoken yet. James could turn this whole thing around in a minute. And James says, brothers, listen to me. And James seals the preservation of the Gospel. And I want you to notice how he does it. James says, you know the Bible says, and he begins to quote Amos. He he actually says, all of the prophets say, but let me give you one example. James takes us to the Scriptures. And then at that point, there's no place else to go. You see, God has vindicated that it is by grace in the works of ministry of Paul and Peter. Peter has claimed That he has always preached grace. Paul has described all of the things that have happened on the missionary journey and now James says the Bible says so too. Truth is upheld. And in upholding truth, James does not do it in a vacuum. He establishes God's people because he says the Gentiles are to be brought in. He says this is what everything was about. That God would make a people for His name. And that word for people was synonymous with Jews. Except for James says, a people of Gentiles too. He says we must all be one people. Not Jewish Christians, not Gentile Christians, not Greek Christians, and Turkish Christians. We must all be one people. And then he also shows some good politicking. He says, you know, Simeon reported... And that may have seemed odd to you. Who's Simeon? Oh, that's Peter. Oh, Peter's name is Simon. Yes, but Peter's Jewish name is Simeon. That's the Aramaic form. You see, James wants to remind these Jewish Christians that they are a part of this community too. And he says, so we can live in peace together, let me lay down some basic ground rules. Of life. They don't deal with salvation, but they'll help us to live together in harmony. That's what the end of this text is about. We'll look more at it when the letter goes out next week. So, in conclusion, we see that the people of God are gathered together, Jews and Gentiles, upheld by the gospel of grace that Paul and Peter and James and all of the servants of God fight for and live and die for. And you see, the church is an organized unit. It is organized to serve the gospel, not the reverse. It is organized that we might stand together in the day of adversity. It is organized that we might stand together and show our love for one another to bring the gospel to a watching world. Are you ready to stand for that? Because that's what Christmas is about. Not red and green. Not bells. Not wrapping paper. Not candles. It's about Jesus. And about grace. And about love. And about community. Let's pray.